We're continuing in this series entitled Ecclesia, which is the Greek word for the church in the New Testament, in an attempt to recover who we are. And so far, we have seen that the church is a spiritual family. Out of Ephesians chapter 2, we've seen that the church is indeed a chosen race. It's a people made up of all the peoples of the earth. Out of 1 Peter chapter 2, it's a royal priesthood that we share in the dignity of royalty because of our union with Jesus. Uh, by God's grace and in faith in Christ, that we are no longer peasants, but princes and kings and queens and princesses. It's like a Disney fairy tale come to life. Right? We've also seen that we're a holy nation, that there's a particular culture that God wants to form amongst His people that He calls His own. And this morning we come to take a look at that last descriptor in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. So we're going to read that text together once again. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, Peter writes, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. Listen, we want to think of it very simply, uh, that the church is uh, the people of God who are waiting for God's country. (laughs) Because this is not God's country. Um, America is not God's country. We said a little bit of that last week. Uh, We're waiting for God's country. Or as C.S. Lewis put it in his series, The Chronicles of Narnia, where people who are waiting for Aslan's country, Right? If you look at the end of the book, uh, The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, the fifth installment in the Chronicles of Narnia, there's a really captivating scene. And if you watch the cinematic depiction of that book, uh, it was really, really cool with all the special effects. They were able to bring that scene to life. But you find this scene where uh, Prince Caspian and Edmund and Lucy and Ripici, the little mouse, right, who's got the sword, who loves to fight everyone, who's brave and heroic. Uh, they meet Aslan on a beach with a mighty wave of water that rises up before them and Aslan says to them that on the other side of that wave of water lies his country. But he says, once you pass over to my country, you do not return. Okay? And there's a sense in which their work would come to an end in this country once they passed into that one. And there's a sense in which the church is God's people in this country who are citizens of that country. And as they live in this country, they live with the ethic of that country. They live with the values of that country. They live for the glory and the fame of that king and not these smaller kings. They are indeed a people for God's own possession. A people from among all peoples for God's own possession here today amongst the nations of the earth. So we've looked at being a chosen race. We've looked at being a royal priesthood. We've looked at being a holy nation. This morning we want to drill down into what it means to be a people for God's own possession. And the first thing that I want, to sh- want us to see this morning is this, is that to be a people for God's own possession means this about the church, about our identity, that the church is beloved by God. It is beloved by God. Listen, in the Old Testament, God calls the people of Israel His treasured possession or His special 
possession. In Exodus chapter 19, verse 5, we read these words. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. In other words, God says to the nation of Israel, after leading them out of slavery and bondage and captivity in Egypt. In other words, after He rescues them, He says, if you will walk with me, if you would keep my covenant, if you would, if you would obey me and experience the kind of life that would flourish that I've designed you for, listen, out of all the peoples on the face of the earth, I've set my affection upon you. You are my treasured possession. It is you, Israel, that are my treasured possession. My special possession. And Peter takes that language used of Israel in Exodus 19 and he applies it to the church. right? Not only made up of ethnic Jews, but of Gentiles, of people from all peoples. He applies it to the church. The church is God's treasured possession. In fact, that word possession in the Greek in 1 Peter chapter 2, it literally means this. It means to be acquired by purchase. To be acquired by purchase all, but it also carries the idea that what was purchased, that the purchaser works to preserve and to keep and protect and to guard what he's acquired. And listen, God has acquired for himself a people with the price of purchase. And he did not purchase the church. He did not purchase the people whom he would call his bride, which we'll take a look at next week. He did not purchase them with the blood of bulls and goats. That's what the author of Hebrews tells us. But we're purchased with the very precious blood of Jesus himself. Now, there was a purchase price for us. But it was, there was no price. We, we could not pay the price by our own blood. Nor could the blood of bulls or goats satisfy the price that needed to be paid. It was only the price. The only, the only blood that could satisfy the price that needed to be paid was the blood of the spotless lamb who gave himself in our place. God's very son who would be sent as our savior to live in our place and then die in our place. Right, so he fulfilled all the righteous requirements of the law so that as he went to the cross, he went as a spotless, perfect, pure sacrifice and substitute for our sins. That whenever we come to place our faith in him, that his record is credited to us as our record was laid upon him at the cross. That's good news this morning, church. That's gospel. Okay? And that you are God's beloved. He acquired you at a cost to Himself. Let me ask you a question. Some of you may have your own treasured possessions. Hmm? Anyone? Anybody got a special possession? Treasured possession. Something that you would do anything to hold on to. Something that you would risk even your very life to keep or to rescue. Okay, you might ask it this way. If your house were to catch on fire tonight, I'm not wishing that for any of you, but should your house combust this evening, what is it that you would try at the risk of your own life to bring out of the flames with you? Listen, whenever I was a child, it was my collection of baseball cards because I was convinced as a kid that those things we're going to make me a millionaire one day. Now they're worth about 30 cents. 
because they flooded the market with all, nah, I could go into that for a long time. But listen, that was my baseball cards as I grew and aged, right? Some of you, it might be a journal, right? Because on the pages of that journal, you have wept, you have, you, there's tears staining that journal as it's recorded God's faithfulness and His providence in your life. As you look back on seeing how God has led you and you've written those things down, sometimes rejoicing over them with tears, sometimes weeping in sadness and grief, and your tears covered those pages, and you would go to that desk drawer at the risk of your life to remove it with you, to rescue it. Listen, as I aged and I got married, it became my wife, but I would give my life to rescue her from the flames. As we had children, I would give my life for my children to rescue them from the flames. Listen, the things that are your treasured possession oftentimes become so treasured and special for you because there's a piece of you that is pressed into it. And maybe a piece of furniture that you've built, that you've labored to create. Right? Or that journal that you've, that you've wept over. Or your children that you've born. There's something of you that's been pressed into that possession. And so you would risk everything to rescue it. And you know what? God himself has pressed, him, he's pressed his image into us. That we are God's image bearers out of all creation. And so God, out of his love and his affection, he, he risked everything, gave everything that he could to rescue us for himself, because we, out of all the peoples of the earth, he says, those who are in Christ are his treasured possession, his special possession. And he did so out of love. See, the church is beloved by God. But why would he give everything for us? Is it because we were really special? Is it because we had our stuff together? Right? Is it because we cleaned ourselves up really well? Right, every once in a while, whenever I show up to do a wedding or a funeral, I show up in a suit and a tie, and people always make the comment, well, you clean up nice. Is it because we cleaned up nice before the Lord? That's not the reason. Listen, John Calvin said it this way. Nothing could be further from the truth, he said. Listen to what he says. He says, he says, we who are by nature polluted, He chose us. When He could find nothing in us but filth and vileness, He makes us His peculiar possession from worthless dregs. He confers the honor of the priesthood on the profane. He brings the vassals of Satan, of sin, and of death to the enjoyment of royal liberty. It wasn't that He looked at us and saw us to be really good people who were deserving of His affection. It's that God set His affection on us because God has affection for us. That God chose us because He loves us and He loves us because He loves us. That's what the record of the Scriptures say in Deuteronomy 7, 6, 8. He says, chapter 7, verses 6 to 8, he says, For you are people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for His treasured possession. There's that word again. Out of all the peoples that are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set His love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all peoples. But it's because the Lord loves you. And is keeping his promise that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has done this, brought you out of the house of slavery, out of under the hand of the Egyptians, and bringing you to this land that he had promised to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. 
God chooses because God loves, and God loves because God loves. That's what God says in Deuteronomy chapter 7. Listen, you're beloved by God, church. You're beloved by God. And whenever that truth gets a grip on your heart, listen to what it will do for you. It will help you live with a rock-solid, stable sense of security that nothing in this world can shake. Nothing in this world can shake. When the truth that you're beloved by God grips you, then you come to realize, listen, that all of your insecurities, anybody got insecurities this morning? I'm right. I feel you, brother. I'm the only one that's going to raise my hand, right? I, but we all have insecurities in our lives. But whenever this truth begins to grip your heart, then you come to realize that all your insecurities are absolutely irrational. They don't make sense. Okay? They don't stand to reason. Right? It means all, all your insecurities as a mom or a dad. Anybody got insecurities about how you're parenting your children? I do. Often. All the time, every day. <laughs> I have insecurities about how I'm doing as a dad, right? Especially as, listen, I'm not going to sell my kids out this morning, but when you see some of the choices they make or the ways they respond in certain situations, you're like, where did I go wrong? Right? And all this insecurity begins to flood my heart about the kind of job that I'm doing as a mom or a dad, the insecurity surrounding your performance at work, on the job. In your vocation, the eyes of your supervisors. You might got insecurities about how you're doing professionally. I know I do at times. Listen, I know you can send me emails this week, right, to encourage me. But listen, I have insecurities about how I'm doing as a pastor sometimes. And I'm sure you do as well as teachers or as businessmen or as, as even moms who are laboring inside the home, as educators, as engineers. Right? You, in, in your, as mechanics, in your professional life, you have insecurities. You have insecurities under the surface because of what your neighbors might think about you. What your family members might say about you. Right? After the holidays. We all have insecurities. We all have insecurities. But listen, if this truth grips your heart, the truth of being beloved by God, of being chosen by God, of God setting His affection upon you, of being His treasured possession that He purchased with the life of His very Son. And you begin to combat all those insecurities with this truth of being God's peculiar possession, His special possession, His marked out possession. You begin to combat all of those insecurities and you realize that they're just irrational. They don't stand up to reason. But the problem for us oftentimes is this, is that all of our insecurities, they are on video in our lives, while this truth oftentimes is only on audio. Now listen, if you've ever had that dynamic working perhaps in your home where you're watching something on a screen and it's riveting, riveting you and captivating you, but you're also hearing something in the background, right? right? This happens oftentimes with my children. Whenever they're watching a show and I'm asking for their attention, right? Dad's not on video. Dad's only on audio. And whenever video and audio compete, which one wins? Video always wins, doesn't it? And listen, the same is true in our lives. See, our insecurities are playing themselves out in our minds and before our eyes day after day after day. All right. 
See, what we need to do is to take this truth of being beloved by God and shift it from only being on audio and place it on video in our lives by saturating our lives day after day after day after day with the truth of it. And we're going to get to that here more in a moment. But if we will saturate our lives with it, if we'll put it on video, it will change the way that you relate to everyone else around you, but also the way that you relate to yourself if you operate out of that kind of security. Because the opinions of others, listen, will begin to lose their grip in your life. As a friend of mine, J.R. Vassar, once said, he said this, when the opinion of the one that matters most matters most to you, it sets you free from the opinions of everyone else. See, when the opinions of the one that matters most, God, that you're His beloved, when it, that matters most to you, when it's on video in your life, then all of a sudden the opinions of everyone else begin to recede into the background. They just become audio, white noise in your life. It changes the way that you relate to others and it changes the way that you relate to yourself. See, those who know God, listen church, as their Father through Jesus Christ, and they're rejoicing in that identity as God's beloved. They have this unshakable security because they know they've been adopted by God, brought into His family. They are His sons and daughters. They are a very child of God. And to be adopted, to be adopted at a, at a fundamental level means this. It means to be chosen. To be wanted. To be pursued. And listen, everyone Everyone, no matter age, no matter class, no matter background, everyone wants to be wanted. Everyone wants to be chosen. A guy named Trevor Noah, he's a South African comedian, political uh, commentator, uh, but he has a very interesting story. Um, he's, he hosts a television show here in the States called The Daily Show. It's on Comedy Central. Uh, but he's a biracial, he was born as a biracial man with a black mother and a white father who grew up in South Africa under the system of apartheid. And where interrelation, interracial relations were against the law. And as a result, he struggled for most of his life with his identity. You see, his father and mother knew that him being seen in public with his dad would bring prison time for his father. And so as a result, his father receded in the background out of his life. And he was basically raised by his mom. And yet later in his life, he goes on to write about this experience. And listen to what he has to say. He says, as people, we can, we can try to deny it, but being chosen is probably one of the most wonderful feelings you can experience as a human being. I think a lot of the time, that's what we're all doing. We're going through our lives trying to be chosen. We're trying to be chosen in a relationship. We try to be chosen in a job. We try to be chosen in a community. And that being chosen gives you a sense of belonging. It makes you feel like you matter. And that's where parents play a big role, he says, because, we are trying, because when we are chosen by our parents, that becomes the foundation of how we see ourselves in the world. So for me, I always knew I was chosen by my mom. And I knew my dad loved me, but because I had, had lost contact with him for so long for various reasons, I didn't exactly know if he still chose me. And then you get to a point when you meet a man after 10 years and you realize that not only was he still seeing himself as my father, but more importantly, was following everything I did in my life. 
That's a wonderful feeling, a feeling that I think and I wish everyone would have, and that is to know that you mean something to someone. Listen, he describes a very basic human longing. A desire to know that you mean something to someone, that someone has chosen you, that someone wants you. And listen, church, if the experience of being chosen by our parents sets a foundation for our identity as human beings as we emerge into adulthood, being chosen by our parents who are themselves but image bearers of God, then how much more so does being chosen and adopted and beloved by the God who, by the power of His Word, brought all things into being, and the God who sent His Son to live and die in our place, how much more so does the truth of being beloved and chosen by God lay a foundational, bedrock, unshakable sense of security in your life? Because it tells you that someone wanted you someone loves you you mean something to someone what that means is you can you can stop trying to be chosen you can stop trying to be the kid on the playground who always got picked last for whatever team was being selected because you're God's treasured possession And you're secure in Him. The good news? It's good news. But not only does this text teach us that you are beloved by God, the text also teaches us this, that the church belongs to God. It belongs to God. That we are His possession. That we belong to Him. And a part of the output of that means this. It means that we do not get to determine how we're going to run our lives any longer. Personally, it means that you don't get to rule and run your life any longer. You don't get to determine what is right and wrong for you any longer. Right? That if you're His possession, right? that in order uh, to, that you're, you're at His disposable, at disposable, at His disposal, your, your life is ordered around His purposes and His plans and His priorities. Right? And whenever you fill your life with that truth, what happens is you begin to slowly progress in recognizing that this is true, that you're not your own. That you're not your own. Listen, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul's writing about sexual purity to the church at Corinth. And he gets to the end of that chapter in verse 18 and he says this, flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, he says. If you're in Christ, you're not your own. You don't belong to yourself. For you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body, that God acquired you at the cost of His Son, and so you're no longer your own. You don't get to run and rule your own life. You don't get to call your own shots any longer. Everything is brought in submission to Him. And whenever that truth gets a grip on your life, then it has a sanctifying effect in your life. And here's why. Listen, because you begin to realize that the one who has possession has the prerogative. Right? You know, it might be a big word. Prerogative just means right. 
The one who has the possession has the prerogative. The one who has redeemed you has the right now to direct you, to lead you, to guide you for his purposes. See, the one who has possession has the prerogative to call a family to the foreign mission field. Some of us may wrestle with that. Like, why, why would I uproot my life here? I've got a good paying job. I've got a nice home to go live in a bush somewhere, right? Or in a village or in a third world country where I'm having to filter water every day, live amongst villagers in a place where the gospel is not yet known, Jesus is not yet glorified, churches have not yet been planted. But the one who has possession has the prerogative to raise up a family and send them thousands of miles away. See, the one who has possession has the prerogative to compel a family to share the love they have that's overflowing in their lives to bring into their family another who has been discarded by their family of origin through the process of adoption. The one who has the possession has the prerogative to compel a family to adopt a child and to dote on them as they would their own biological children. The one who has the prerogative, or the possession has the prerogative to direct other people into fields of uh, direct young people into fields of technology and industry, to direct them into fields of education and engineering, to direct them into fields of medicine and law, to direct them into fields of business, right? Trade school, wherever it is that, right? Trade school, whatever it is that God has in store for them. He has the prerogative and the right to move and direct and push and prompt and compel them toward His purposes in those fields to where they can participate, listen, in the creation of kingdom culture in their particular field of vocation that God has called them to. He has the prerogative as well to call others to lay aside six-figure jobs to move into vocational ministry in the life of a church and lay themselves down for the sake of the bride and serve her with their lives. The one who has possession has the prerogative, not only personally in our lives, but listen, let me press on something this morning. He has the prerogative corporately as well to lead some churches to plant other churches, right? And to send out some of their best members to plant other churches. Not to want to hang on, right? We built a dream team here, and so we're going to hang on to all these people. But we're going to send out the best of the best in order to help plant and establish a gospel witness in other places and other pockets of population. But the one who has possession also has the prerogative perhaps to lead two churches laboring in the community to labor together under one roof. He has the right. Because the one who has possession has prerogative. Listen, there are things that you have that even your neighbor can't come in your garage and just take. <laughs> right? Because you have the prerogative. You can't, an intruder can't come in and steal. Okay? Especially in the state of Texas. Where you can defend your property with a use of force. And you're like, that's why I got here as quick as I could. Right? Because it's your property, your possession. And I wonder how often in our own lives the truth of belonging to God, not being beloved by Him, but belonging to Him, 
we fail to fill our lives with that truth. And so we end up stealing from God. Rather than laying our lives down for His prerogative to send us and use us as He sees fit. So how, how is it then that we become who we are? I'm going to close with this. How do we become who we are? Become what we are? How do we, how do we grow in our identity as those who are beloved by and belong to God? Let me very simply, I want to say one thing to you this morning is this. You've got to fill your life with these truths. Day after day after day. Listen, a couple of weeks ago, I, I'm training for a half marathon right now. And so, um, it's actually next Saturday morning. So, you can pray for me. Um, it's going to be really hot and really humid. And I'm going to sweat a lot. But two weeks ago, I hit the peak of my long runs in the training cycle. And I ran 15 miles down at White Rock Lake in Dallas. And um, I ran with a little handheld water bottle. There are water fountains all along the trail at White Rock. And so over the course of my run, by like five miles in, there is not a stitch of clothing on me that is dry. All right? And I got 10 miles to go. So I'm just sweating profusely. By the time I got done, my shirt and my shorts looked like I just got out of the pool. They were so saturated with water. My shoes and socks, you're like, you're not, is this supposed to be helpful? My shoes and socks were so, they were so saturated with sweat that they felt like they had just come out of the washing machine. All right? But as I ran, I constantly was filling up on water, constantly trying to hydrate over the course of the, of, of the route. Because I knew that at the moment I stopped frequently hydrating my body, that my body would sweat out and I would be at risk of dehydration, of heat stroke, of all other kinds of things that would be detrimental to my life. And so every water fountain I saw, I paused my watch, I stopped, filled up the water bottle, and I drank nearly the entire 12 ounces between there and the next water fountain that I came to. And I stopped and I filled up again. And every water fountain that I came to, I didn't skip a single one because I knew that I needed to continually hydrate, fill up my body because that was what I needed for my health. And listen, church, the same is true for us spiritually. You have to continually fill your life with these truths. Saturate every cell of your being with these truths. That you're beloved by God and that you belong to God. You fill up constantly. One of the ways to do that is by showing up here consistently, Sunday after Sunday. Because I... I, (laughs) I believe that as a church that centers itself on the gospel is going to remind you through song and through prayer and through scripture and through sermons week after week after week after week of the fact that you're beloved by God and the fact that you belong to Him. And listen, you may think, ah, if I can just hit 50%, I'll, I'll be doing good. But I want you to know something. Constant exposure has a cumulative effect in your life. And listen, you also never know what God may do any given Sunday. Any given Sunday. As you gather with the people of God to sing His praises, hear His word read, pray, sit under the teaching of the Bible, be reminded of the gospel. 
It's one of the ways you continually fill up. It's that you never pass a fueling station. Another way that you can do that is by meditating on and memorizing the Scriptures. I wonder how many of us memorize and meditate on God's Word. Let me give you a couple of texts to aid you in this. The first would be 1 John chapter 2, verses 28 through chapter 3, verse 3. Listen to what John writes in, those, in, 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 those, in that text. 1 John 2.28, he says, I write these things to you about those... Uh, I'm sorry, I started in verse 26. We start in verse 28. And now, little children, abide in Him, so that when He appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from Him in shame at His coming. If you know that He is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of Him. And then in verse 1 of chapter 3, he erupts into this, this just... His heart being filled with the thoughts of God's love. He says, see what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God and so we are. You're beloved by God. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be His children and that's exactly what you are, He says. But you belong to Him as well for if you know that He is righteous, then you practice righteousness. I wonder if we would memorize and then just chew and meditate on that text day after day for the next week, the next month. You know what you'd be doing? You wouldn't be passing up a refueling station. But you'd be constantly hydrating, taking in what your heart and soul need for the endurance race of walking with Jesus all the days of your life. So fill up, church. Fill up on these truths. Listen, this morning we're going to sing together as we close the service, rejoicing in the Savior that God has sent for us, His Son, the Lord Jesus. And if you're here this morning and you've never crossed the line of faith, you've never come to trust in Him, you've never come to, to an understanding of the price that was paid that you might have an opportunity to know God, Truly and rightly and fully, I want to invite you to respond to Him in faith this morning. To repent of sin. To say, I don't run and rule my life anymore. But I want to yield to Jesus. Allow Him to have the right of way in my life. I want to trust Him to save me, to rescue me from the destructive patterns in my life that have, that have, that have created all kinds of chaos and wreaked all kinds of havoc in my past. If that's you this morning, I would love to visit with you after the service. I'll be at the kiosk in the back of the room. I would love to pray with you. I'd love to tell you more about Jesus and what it is to trust Him with your life. If you're here this morning and you have already come to faith in Jesus, I want to invite you to rejoice in these truths that you are a beloved of God, but also that you would go forth from this place knowing that you belong to Him. And so I'm going to pray for us. And David and Melinda are coming to lead us in song. And we're going to sing together this morning. As we, as we respond to the truth of being God's treasured possession. Let's pray. Father, this morning we thank You for Your grace. We thank You for Your mercy that is indeed enough for us, that it's new every morning, that it's greater than our sin, that it's overcome 
our deficit, that the debt that we owed, we could never pay on our own. But you paid for us. We thank you that you spared no expense so that we might be a people, that your church might be a people who are waiting for Aslan's country. That we might be citizens of heaven here on earth. And that we might be a people who have a stable, secure identity. No longer wrestling with the issues of fear of man. That, that, that the, those issues would slowly lose their grip on our lives. As the truth of being your beloved continues to grip our hearts. And may we be a people who submit to you, your prerogatives in our lives. As we acknowledge that we belong to you and not to ourselves. Help us to fill up on these truths day in and day out.